Well, hello again, uh, FAC family. Pastor Mike here. It's uh, good to be with you. Uh, let's go ahead and study God's Word together. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 9. We're going to pick up right where we left off from last week in that second part of verse 19. Um, once again, as you're turning there, I, I would like to request your prayer for wisdom as the leadership of FAC here considers what in-person ministry is going to look like here in the future. Uh, please know that as we've entered into this yellow phase, uh, as defined by our governor, which has lifted some restrictions, uh, we are brainstorming ideas of how we can possibly engage with you in person while still following the recommended guidelines. Uh, as we pray through this together, though, I would strongly encourage you to um, meet in homes together, go visit with other believers, uh, and participate in these services, particularly with other believers. Hebrews 10.25 is very clear that we should not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. It's safe to say that right now we're all in the habit of not meeting together and we need to change that. With us being in the yellow phase now, it allows us to gather in smaller groups. And while FAC, we can't accommodate the entire local congregation under such guidelines, you as a believer uh, have the freedom and the liberty now to gather with other believers. I would go as far to say that we are under obligation to meet with one another in person now, even if it's just in a small group. Um, watching this service and participating in this service alone at home in your pajamas is certainly no replacement for the authentic fellowship uh, of believers. As I was talking with a close friend about this very issue, um, his words represented my very sentiment on this. He, he said that we as believers are just not built for an online church. We need to be with people, and not even in a polished way but sincerely, with the power of God's Word and the power of the Spirit. That's all we need to be the church, and so I hope that you would take that encouragement uh, prayerfully and seriously. Uh, before we begin our time studying, let's uh, turn to God's Word together in Acts chapter 9, verse 19, and then uh, we'll turn to God in prayer as well. Now, Acts 9, 19 through 31 says this, for some days he was with the disciples, he being Saul, was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. 
And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Father, at this moment I ask for clarity. This is a very confusing time with a lot of unanswered questions, but we know that you are the source of all wisdom and knowledge, that you hold all the answers in your hand, and we know that such wisdom and knowledge is communicated by you through your word. So we come to your word today to, to grow in wisdom and understanding and to know who you are more so that we may glorify and praise you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When there, one day there was a farmer who went about scattering seeds uh, down a path. He would uh, reach into his bag that he was carrying and he would grab a handful of seeds and with every couple of steps, steps down the walkway, he would just launch the seeds up in the air and they would scatter all over, all over the place with every step. And they would land in all different places along the, the way. Some of the seeds that he threw landed directly on the path that the farmer was walking on while some of the other seeds would fall in some pretty rocky areas nearby and some of the seeds even landed in patches that were nothing but thorns and bristles. But there were some seeds that landed in good, rich soil that was a perfect landing spot for them. As the weeks went on, the farmer took notice of how each of the seeds progressed, how the plants progressed. For instance, the seeds that fell on the path weren't even there anymore. Maybe a week prior, the farmer noticed some birds walking down the path, and uh, he saw that the birds were eating the seeds that fell there. As the farmer observed the seeds that fell in the rocky areas, he noticed that these plants actually sprung up fairly quickly, but they didn't last long because the soil wasn't deep enough. The roots couldn't penetrate the rocks. And so as they sprang up, as, as the sun came out, it, it scorched these plants. They, they withered quickly because there was no root. There was no uh, nutrition. The third type of seed that fell in those thorny patches also grew, but they couldn't bear any crop because the thorns eventually choked them out. But finally, the farmer came across the seeds that fell on the good uh, and rich soil. These seeds became plants that grew like wildfire and spread uh, tremendously. There was a huge harvest from this uh, crop that, that, that multiplied. It multiplied the seed up to a hundred times. And the farmer was pleased with the harvest that came from the seeds that fell on the good soil. This, this story may sound familiar to you because it's a story that I stole directly from Jesus himself. It's what he would call a parable. A parable is simply a, a short story that teaches a simple spiritual lesson. Jesus loved to tell these simple parables. It was one of his favorite ways uh, to teach. Now, some of the parables of Jesus that you come across uh, 
are a little bit cryptic for us because we live in a context and a culture that is much different from when Jesus walked the earth. And so we may not understand them as well. We've got to dig a little bit deeper to find out what these parables mean. Uh, but this particular parable, which is known as the parable of the sower, is actually uh, very clear because it's one of the few parables that Jesus actually explains the meaning of in the text. Jesus teaches that the farmer sowing the seed represents the word of God going out, being scattered into the world, and uh, how each seed grows or doesn't grow for that matter, uh, how that represents people uh, receiving the word. He tells us that the first seed that lands on the path is eaten up by the birds. That that represents the people who hear his word, uh, but don't understand it or reject it immediately. The birds are actually, he says, the, the devil that swoops in and takes what's been sown in their heart. The second seed that lands in the rocky soil represents those who receive the word. They, they respond. They, per, perhaps they made some kind of a profession of faith, but when trouble or persecution comes because of their response, uh, when the sun beats down on them, they wither. They don't last very long because they have no root, uh, because they don't want to have to deal with the, the persecution and the pain that comes with being a Christ follower. The third seed that lands among the thorn also springs up. Once again, they also respond in some fashion as well. Uh, but this seed represents those that are choked on life's worries and riches and pleasures. They're, they're too distracted with the rest of the world to care about God's word. And finally, the last seed that lands on the good soil and produces a great harvest, Jesus, uh, in his own words, says that this represents those who hear God's word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. We established a few weeks ago that uh, when we looked at Acts 8, that not all who receive the word, not all who who uh, even respond to it or make a profession of faith are genuine believers. If you recall, Simon the magician in Acts 8 professed faith. He was even baptized, but he grew too concerned with power and with influence. Simon is like the seed that fell among the thorns. He was choked out by his own desires for earthly treasure. Now, from our, once again, human perspective, it's impossible to tell 100% who is a genuine believer and who is just putting on a show. Only God can decipher such mystery. But what this parable does teach us is that a strong indication that one is a genuine believer is perseverance. Perseverance, endurance, is an indicator that one is a genuine believer, that their faith is genuine, the one who perseveres. Jesus said this in Matthew 24. He's speaking with his disciples, and he tells his disciples in this famous sermon about how they will face this extreme persecution, so much so that some who profess faith will actually fall away. They will be uh, like that seed, right, that falls uh, on the rocks. And then he says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
It's the one who gets to the end of life, who's experienced all the pain, who's experienced all the persecution, who's experienced all the temptations, who's even experienced all the allure to earthly treasures, and still says, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior above all things. It's one like Ravi Zacharias, who we lost last week in his battle with cancer, one of the greatest apologists of our day, a fellow Christian and Missionary Alliance worker. At age 17, Ravi was hospitalized when he attempted suicide. And a pastor showed up to visit him and shared the gospel with him. And over the course of time, Ravi responded to the gospel. He professed faith in Jesus. And he would go on to teach the Bible, and defend the faith for over five decades. And near the end of his life, Ravi said, after now living for Christ for over five decades, I've only drawn closer and closer, and I'm absolutely convinced there is no other answer than the person of Jesus Christ. What an amazing endurance. I don't know the exact stat, but I'm comfortable to say that a good portion of those who profess faith at some point fall away within the first several years, just like Jesus' parable teaches. The, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, you might be familiar with them as an organization. They're known for their mission to proclaim the gospel by whatever effective means possible and available. One time I was speaking with a representative from the association and he explained that one of the statistics that they try to collect is not just how many people made decisions for Christ at one of their uh, events, but also how many of those decisions are still walking with Jesus five years later. They try to keep track of this metric because they know that people fall away. Now as a side note, just so there's clarity and understanding If they fall away, it's because they never really had the Spirit in them to begin with. They never had that transforming touch of the Holy Spirit. I assure you that if the Holy Spirit has transformed you, has brought you to life, has regenerated you, is a word we would use, you will persevere. There's nothing that you can do to undo the work of the Holy Spirit. If there was, that would be a great insult to God, and it would give us much, much more power than we're even capable of. And so with all of that in mind, as we come to Scripture together today, we come back to it on the heels of one of the most famous decisions for Jesus ever, the conversion of Saul. The one who once persecuted Jesus is now following him. If you were a believer at the time, it wouldn't be outlandish to wonder, is Saul like the seed that falls in the rocks or in the thorns, or is this genuine? Is he on the good soil? Only time will tell. And the passage that we read actually describes those first critical years in Saul's life as a believer as he begins his ministry. And it, and it describes the birth pains, if you will, of uh, Saul's ministry in those first moments. And so let's digest together as we walk through this 
passage. Uh, in verse 19, we find that Saul spends many days with the disciples. It appears that they've um, accepted him in to the community of believers. The, these believers in Damascus have followed Ananias' uh, pattern of receiving Saul, which we saw last week. And then in verse 20, Saul immediately begins proclaiming to the Jewish community that Jesus is the Son of God. We should take notice that it is natural, it's a natural event for Saul to uh, preach the gospel fresh off of his conversion. He has this burning passion, this burning desire to tell people about who Jesus is right away. Some of the most enthusiastic and eager believers are those who are new to the faith. Of course they're eager, because their eyes have just been opened to one of the greatest, not just one of the greatest, the greatest sight of all time, arisen Jesus. When you have experienced something so life-changing, so dramatic, so impactful, when you have experienced something so emotional, all of that will come through when you tell other people about it. This past week I was listening to Truth For Life which is a preaching ministry from a pastor named Alistair Begg. I used to go to his church. I grew up there. And in his sermon, Alistair said that the sense of wonder at God's dealing with us will permeate the way in which we tell the story to others. Oh, what it would be like for me to evangelize with the enthusiasm that I did that hour I first believed. And Saul and his faithfulness is effective because the Jewish people in the synagogues are just baffled in verse 21. They're saying, now wait a minute. Isn't this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem to Christians? Isn't he the one who is coming to imprison them? And there's just shock. And as they try to understand the situation and we read that Saul... Um, all the more in strength, he increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews in Damascus. The, the term for strength here isn't referring to physical strength. No, the idea that we get is actually that the Spirit is empowering him to preach. The, the Spirit is uh, giving him strength to, to preach. Essentially, he's empowered to preach the gospel. He's, uh, his proclamation is stronger because of the Holy Spirit. And this, once again, confounds the Jews. In other words, it it's confuses them. They're, they're, it baffles them. Almost, we get the sense to the point of annoyance. Here comes Saul causing havoc, causing an uproar in the city. He's kind of rocking the boat a little bit, but he's not doing it for the Christians, which we thought he was coming for. He's actually rocking the boat for the Jews. When it says that the Jews were confounded, right, we get the sense that they, they are just feeling the ultimate irony of the situation. That the place where Saul uh, intended to arrest Christ's followers is now the place that Saul first proclaims the message of Jesus. And what's more ironic is that later on, Saul will have to flee from persecution. That's verses 22, or excuse me, 23 through 25. It says that when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Now, when we read this 2,000 years later, and you could ask the question, when did this happen? 
How many days passed? How many days is when many days passed? Is it, is it a couple of weeks? Maybe a month? In all reality, it was much longer. And we know this when we overlay Saul's own testimony about the situation with the narrative. When, when Saul writes a letter to the Galatians, the, the church in Galatia, in Galatians 1, verses 15 through 19, he addresses this. Uh, take a look at what it says. Saul writes, But when God who sent me, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles uh, before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. According to Galatians 1, the time in between verse 22 and verse 23 here in Acts 9 is three years. We read that after his conversion in Damascus, he actually travels to Arabia, which is a bordering region. Uh, he, he goes to Arabia for a, an undisclosed amount of time, and then he comes back to Damascus. And there's this three-year uh, time period that he's in Damascus in, in Arabia. And so in that three years, he, you could assume that he continues to preach, that he is preaching the gospel adamantly to the point that the Jews now want to kill him. They, they are no longer confounded. Their annoyance over the course of three years now escalates to the point where they want him dead. And not only do the Jews want to murder him, but according to 2 Corinthians 11, which is another account of this testimony, uh, and we'll read it in a moment, we find out that, once again, not only do the Jews want to murder him, but the governing authorities in Damascus want to murder him as well. And so as the plot becomes known to Saul, him and other disciples hatch a plan for his escape. We read that the gates are guarded, they're on the lookout for him, and so he has to make his exit another way. Uh, in those times, you would often have homes, or what may better be described as apartments, that are adjacent to the city walls. And uh, so the window in your living room and your bedroom could very well be the window outside of the city limits, outside of the, the city wall. Uh, Saul is dropped through one of those windows and is lowered down in the middle of the night in a basket. Think of how much uh, of a humiliation this could be for Saul, how, how humiliating this must have felt for Saul. And think about his former way of life. Saul very, uh, was very likely part of what we call the Sanhedrin uh, in Judaism. The Sanhedrin was a governing, the governing authority of, of Judaism, and it consisted of 71 men. Saul was one of the most powerful and influential men in Judaism. And now, three short years later, He's being ushered into Christian ministry in obscurity. It would be easy for Saul to sit there in that basket in the middle of the night and say, well, look where this Jesus fellow got me. This is quite a rotten deal. 
I didn't sign up for this. Where is the fine print on this? This isn't what I thought I was getting myself into. However, we know exactly what Saul is thinking in this moment because he writes about it in 2 Corinthians 11. Verse 30 through 33, take a look at it. He, He writes, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Eritas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Very clearly in that passage, Saul is associating his departure in this basket with weakness. This is a humble and weak and vulnerable moment for Saul. And we need to understand that when we pursue ministry of any kind, our pride must be checked at the door. And you have to know what you're getting yourself into. Check your attitude. Because ministry is not about you and what you can do. It's about God and what he can do. In preparation um, for today's message, I actually listened to another pastor preach on this text. And what he had to say was too good not to share it with you. And so I'm going to quote him. He, He said that some of us want to be released in ministry, but not out through a window and certainly not in a basket. If we are not prepared to enter ministry in a basket when no one is looking, we are not prepared to enter ministry at all. When you consider the parable of the sower once more and remember that there is seed that falls on the rocky soil, which dies out from persecution, you think perhaps after three years of resistance, this is where Saul calls it quits. This is where Saul hangs it up and recants his belief in Jesus because of such persecution and weakness. Instead of giving in to the weakness, though, Saul would write in Corinthians that he's going to boast in the weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon him. He continues on, not in his own power, um, but in Christ's power and Jesus' power, he, 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 he's leaning into his weakness because where there's weakness, there is power in Christ. And that's the power that he goes with to Jerusalem. And unfortunately, we come to find that Saul experiences more of the same in Jerusalem. The, the pattern of Damascus repeats itself in Jerusalem exactly. Right? The, the, the disciples are hesitant to receive him like Ananias originally was. Uh, but in this section, we're reintroduced to Barnabas. We met him back in Acts chapter 4. He was the one that sold his field and then gave the proceeds of the field to the apostles so that they could distribute it to those in need. And now we have Barnabas, the son of encouragement himself, speaking on behalf of Saul. In verse 27, it says that Barnabas took him to the apostles. Basically, uh, Barnabas took Saul under his wing. He took him by the hand and, and, and was his advocate. We need more Barnabases in the church. Here at FAC, I want you to know that your leadership deeply loves and cares for you. But I also want you to deeply love and care 
for each other. Be a Barnabas in, in the church. Be the one who looks after the young and the immature believer. Be the one who, who takes a younger believer under their wing. Barnabas demonstrates such care and graciousness for Saul by essentially vouching for him to the apostles, uh, specifically Peter and James, uh, which Saul writes about in Galatians 1. Now imagine with me for a second the risk that this is for Barnabas. He is putting his own neck on the line. Because if Saul is a spy, he now has an audience with the first church leaders. Now would be the time for him to hit the church hard. But Barnabas takes a faith-filled risk and appeals to the apostles on the basis of Saul's testimony and on the basis of his ministry. And just like in Damascus, the community of believers receive him. And from there we read that he goes on to preach boldly once more and um, interestingly enough, he disputes with the Hellenists. And that term should be familiar to you because it was the Hellenists that began disputing with, with Stephen, whom they uh, subsequently martyred. You may be reading this and say, wait a minute, I've, I've seen this movie before. I, I know this. I, I know how this ends. They're going to they're gonna try and kill Saul, just like they tried to kill Stephen. And sure enough, uh, he begins to receive murderous threats from the Jews. This is now the second time in this passage alone that Saul flees for his life. This is becoming a pattern. And you've got to wonder if Saul is just an adrenaline junkie at this point. Uh, Winston Churchill once said that there's nothing more exhilarating than being shot at and missed. Saul would know what that's like firsthand. And as uh, bullets come flying... Saul is shipped off to his hometown of Tarsus, and we won't see him again until the second half of Acts chapter 11. But then we come to verse 31. We finally land the plane on this verse, a verse that seems random um, but extremely important. It mentions that the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace, and was being built up. They're, they're experiencing a sense of respite, right, from persecution as a whole, now that Saul is converted. Now, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church multiplied. We get the idea that this isn't just one local church, but now the universal church as a whole is, is growing, and it's growing in two ways. First, it's growing in maturity, it's being built up. It's being edified. The, the believers in this community are growing closer to God. They're growing closer to, to each other. They're growing closer and growing more in understanding and wisdom. They're, they're, they're being edified. And second, as they fear the Lord and find comfort in the Holy Spirit, it's multiplying. They're, the church is growing in numbers. This verse right here is what we would call a summary statement. And Luke uses it to close out this section of his narrative. And this summary statement, it doesn't refer back to just the, the verses that we looked at today, but it actually goes all the way back to his last summary statement, which would be in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. Pretty much to say, Luke is making the point that 
despite all of those events in the last several chapters, despite Stephen's death, despite Saul ravaging the church, despite um, all the plots to kill Saul as a young believer, the church is still growing. The church is enduring. The church is persevering. The church is healthy. It may seem with all of these transitions and acts that, that it's jarring because it, it feels like it is. The, the main characters keep switching. In the last five months, we've gone from, from the narrative being about, about Peter to Stephen to Philip and now to Saul. But we have to understand that the, the main theme in Acts is not concerned with the development or the direction of these men individually, but rather the development and the direction of the church corporately. The main theme of Acts is that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that he was crucified and risen, is going out into the world despite all opposition. This is why Luke doesn't write more specifically about Saul in those early years and specifically about those three years that he spent in Damascus and Arabia because he he wants the reader not to know about the development of Saul, but rather the development of the church, Jesus' church. This is Luke's purpose for writing, is to show us that Jesus' mission will go out. What these final verses teach us is that not only does a believer like Paul persevere against all odds by the power of the Holy Spirit, but so does the universal church. As Christ would have it, his church, his bride, will grow in maturity and in number, and it will be prepared and ready for that wedding day when Jesus comes back. Even in dark times, even when it feels like Christianity is rejected and persecuted, even in the midst of a worldwide pandemic, the church cannot fail. Jesus will build his kingdom. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for the refreshment it brings to many thirsty souls. We praise you, Father, that even here 2,000 years later, we read of Saul's story and we read of, of really your words that you inspired him to write down, Lord. And, and the church is still going strong. We praise you for that, Father. Would your spirit engrave these words on our hearts? And in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.